Hello there, and welcome to the Paradox Podcast. Today we are starting a series on the book of Nehemiah, and today's teaching is entitled A Series on Hatred, Nehemiah 1 to 7. So with the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we're looking at the concept of hatred. And the reason for this is because when I look at Christians in America today, I am overwhelmed by the amount of hatred that we possess. We hate political parties. We hate immigrants. We hate people who fall outside of what we believe. And I find it disturbing that we are known more for our hatred than for our love. So today we're looking at Nehemiah chapters 1 to 7, and we're going to talk about what leads us to hate other human beings, how we can best avoid falling to the temptation to hate another, and how we can ultimately choose love instead of hatred when it comes to people we disagree with. The book of Nehemiah follows the book of Ezra in the Bible. And so what we naturally assume is that Ezra finishes and then Nehemiah picks up right where Ezra left off. And so Ezra ends with foreign wives and multiracial children being cast out of Jerusalem. We assume that's right where Nehemiah will start, but it doesn't. And I will tell you that I found it personally confusing trying to sort out where Nehemiah picks up from where Ezra leaves off. To sort all this out, I had to reach out to the big guns, specifically a man named Dr. Roger Nam, who is the dean of the Portland Seminary. I emailed him because he's written a commentary on Ezra and Nehemiah, and he is working on his second commentary on those same books. In response, Dr. Nam wrote to me and said, I see Ezra and Nehemiah as woven together much more thematically and ideologically than chronologically. Now, that's a lot of words that end with Ollie. But I think that what Dr. Nam is telling us is quite helpful. To understand how it's helpful, I'd like to talk to you about Spider-Man. Because in my lifetime, I have seen three different universes of Spider-Man be brought to cinematic life. In 2002, the movie Spider-Man debuted with Tobey Maguire as Spider-Man. It had two sequels. And then in 2012, just 10 years later, Sony rebooted the Spider-Man franchise with a franchise known as The Amazing Spider-Man, starring Andrew Garfield. Just five years after that universe began, the Marvel Cinematic Universe started their own iteration of Spider-Man with the movie Spider-Man Homecoming, starring Tom Holland. Now, if you watched all of these movies together, you might be a bit confused because they don't build off one another. In fact, they are not chronologically cohesive. But these Spider-Man movies do share a common bond and they are woven together by common characters, themes, and ideas. In the same way, Ezra and Nehemiah are not chronologically cohesive. Instead, they are woven together by common characters, themes, and ideas. So the book of Nehemiah actually covers a lot of the same events that happen in the book of Ezra, but these events do not line up chronologically. Rather, these books are woven together by their themes and ideas and characters. So with that in mind, let's talk about the book of Nehemiah and set the story for where this writing takes place. So in 586 BCE, the nation of Judah is under attack from a power to the east known as the Babylonian Empire. The empire squashes the small nation of Judah, 
and then takes the survivors back across the desert and forces them to live in exile in the nation of Babylon. There they stay in exile for 47 years when all of a sudden a liberator known as Cyrus the Great from Persia attacks Babylon, defeats them, and then looks around and says, who are you? And they respond to Cyrus that we are the people of Judah. And Cyrus says, you are free to go home as long as you pay your taxes. So the people of Judah who have been living in exile for the past 47 years cross the desert, takes them months. They return to Jerusalem, their devastated home city, and ask an important question. Are we still the people of God? After all, we believe that God is all-powerful and we believe that God liberated us, but this is sort of a half-liberation. God is still allowing us to be taxed. Our city is in ruins. So does God still view us as God's people? This question is the question that Ezra and Nehemiah both seek to answer. It's important as a reader to keep this question in mind as you read these books because they are trying to answer and show to people that in fact the people of Judah are still the people of God. Now this question reverberates around the nation for about 80 to 100 years when all of a sudden the story of Nehemiah picks up. And in Nehemiah 1, we're introduced to Nehemiah, who is a royal cupbearer for the king of Persia. You see, Nehemiah's family did not return with the other people, with the other exiles, back to Jerusalem. Instead, his family chose to stay in what was formerly Babylon, but is now known as Susa. So Nehemiah is in Persia serving the king when all of a sudden a visitor from Jerusalem comes back to him and reports a message. This man's name is Hanani, and he says this to Nehemiah. The survivors there in Jerusalem in the province who escaped captivity are in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Now, Nehemiah writes his response in verse 4. He says, When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Shortly thereafter, Nehemiah is working as a cupbearer to the king when all of a sudden the king of Persia looks at his cupbearer and says, Why is your face sad since you are not sick? This can only be sadness of the heart. Apparently, the king of Persia has a very high emotional intelligence. Nehemiah then tells the king of Persia about the wall around Jerusalem, how it is in disrepair, and how it has saddened his heart. He then makes a request of the king in verse 5 of chapter 2. He says, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my ancestors' graves, so that I may rebuild it. The king agrees to Nehemiah's request. And Nehemiah writes this in verse 8. He says, And the king granted me what I asked, for the gracious hand of God was upon me. You see, Nehemiah does not see this rebuilding of the wall as some sort of side hobby. He sees it as a direct mission from God. Now, it's here that the king offers a military escort for Nehemiah to travel back with him all the way to Judah, and Nehemiah accepts the military escort. So Nehemiah makes this journey across the desert, surrounded by soldiers, and then arrives into Judah. Now, you have to remember that there's no email, there's no Twitter, there's no news source. So you can imagine these people of Judah are sitting around minding their own business 
when a guy from Persia shows up with an army. This is a frightening experience. And if you think about who this is frightening for, the people who are already in power in and around Judah are going to be the most threatened by Nehemiah and his army. Because whenever you roll into a place unannounced with an army, it's a bit of an attention grabber. <laughs> hey guys, I'm here, I'm in charge, and I have money. Oh, and by the way, I have lots of weapons backing me up. You better listen to what I say. So keep that in mind as we're introduced to two men named Sanballat and Tobiah. Now, Sanballat and Tobiah have some clout and have some power in this area. And Nehemiah is frustrated with these two guys. As he writes the story, he talks about Sanballat and Tobiah and how his a presence and arrival displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Well, that's from Nehemiah's perspective. But you can imagine being displeased greatly from Sanballat and Tobiah's perspective because here comes this new guy with military power. So Nehemiah has displeased the local power greatly, but he doesn't tell people what he's there to do. So he stays near Jerusalem for three days, and then on the third day during the night, he goes around and inspects the wall. He makes sure that no one can see him because he wants to assess fully what the state of the wall around Jerusalem is. The very next morning, the fourth day after Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem, he assembles the people around him and he gives them this speech, which is found in chapter 2, verse 17. He says, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burnt. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we may no longer suffer disgrace. The people hearing this speech immediately respond in the positive. They say, let us start building. Now, Sambalat and Tobiah do not like this. They ask Nehemiah if he is in fact rebelling against the king, to which Nehemiah says, of course not. I am doing the work of the king and the work of God. Then in Nehemiah 3, Nehemiah starts to list all the people that helped rebuild the wall. It's a very long list about who was in and who was out. And Nehemiah makes sure to let you know that there were some people who did not help with the wall. Chapter 3, verse 5 reads, Next to them the Techites made repairs, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work of the Lord. After rebuilding from some time, Nehemiah 4 begins. And Nehemiah writes these words. He says, So we rebuilt the wall, and all the wall has joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Now it's here that I have to ask you to use your imagination a little bit. How tall do you imagine this wall to be? Now, we have no record in the Bible about how tall Nehemiah's wall was. We also have no archaeology that tells us how tall Nehemiah's wall was. So you have to imagine how tall this wall actually might be because it plays into the story in just a little bit. For me, I imagine this wall being 20 feet high. Now, I have no scriptural experience to back that up. It's just kind of a gut reaction. So when we read this passage here in Nehemiah chapter 4, I imagine the wall is 10 feet tall, which is still a pretty formidable wall. So now, assuming that this wall is 10 feet tall, Sanballat and Tobiah, the local rulers, look around and they start to get incredibly nervous. Why? Because this man, Nehemiah, has marched into their territory with an army and started building a rather formidable wall. 
And when they look at this, Nehemiah tells us that they became very angry with him. Well, of course they did. Because here's a situation that, as far as we know, has been somewhat peaceful. And Nehemiah comes in and upsets the equilibrium and disturbs the local rulers because it seems like he's declaring war against them. From Sanballat and Tobiah's perspective, Nehemiah is agitating the situation. And so Sanballat and Tobiah begin to look around at their local people and they say, prepare for war. We think war is coming. And then Nehemiah sees them preparing for war and he turns to his people and says, it's your turn to prepare for war. We read about this specifically in chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and body armor. And the leaders posted themselves behind the whole house of Judah who were building the wall. The burden bearers carried their loads in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and with the other held a weapon. So you have to imagine this wall that's about 10 feet high is being worked on now by people who are holding a tool in one hand and a weapon in the other. <laughs> this, in my opinion, is the snapshot that summarizes all of the book of Nehemiah to the best of its ability. In fact, if you look at our logo for the series on Nehemiah, it's two men working on a wall who are armed with guns. Now, this is obviously a modern interpretation of what Nehemiah is, but we wanted you to think about this whenever you hear about the book of Nehemiah. People working on a defensive wall that's already 10 feet high while keeping their weapons very close by. We read more about what Nehemiah writes in the situation in verse 21. He writes, So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night inside Jerusalem so that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me ever took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon in his right hand. So Nehemiah tells us that as this wall gets taller, people are having a harder and harder time falling asleep peacefully. Now, Nehemiah 5 is not so much about the wall as it is about taxes, and then Nehemiah 6 returns to the story of the wall. This chapter begins with Sanballat and Tobiah looking at both sides escalating for war and saying we should do something about this. They try diplomacy. They ask Nehemiah if they can sit down and talk out these disagreements. Nehemiah hears their request and responds with no. Sanballat and Tobiah feel like this is a mistake, so they ask again, and for a second time, Nehemiah says no. They ask five times in chapter 6, and each time Nehemiah refuses to meet and talk with them. After their fifth request, Nehemiah then prays to God to never forgive Sanballat and Tobiah for their transgressions, and that God may always remember how terrible they were. The very next verse after Nehemiah's prayer is verse 15, and it reads this. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month, Elul, in 52 days. And when all of our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. 
So Nehemiah 1 begins with Nehemiah being disturbed that there is no wall. And then we read about how Nehemiah goes back to Jerusalem and rebuilds this wall. And in Nehemiah 6, the wall is completed. And we assume that at the end of chapter 6, we'll read, And the people of Jerusalem lived happily ever after. Because what else could this book possibly be about? But there's seven more chapters. We're not even halfway done with this book. Which raises the question, what on earth are the other seven chapters in Nehemiah about? I mean, the wall is built. So what else is there to do? So to answer that question about what these last seven chapters are about, we have to ask a question and then make note of three different reactions. So the question we have to ask is, why is it important to build a wall? Now, it's here that people will say, well, the wall provides safety and security and helps you to sleep at night, and it ultimately leads to a better quality of life. But is that what happens in the reactions to people with this wall? For instance, if we look at the first reaction that we need to make note of, this wall is half its height, only half its height. And immediately the people around the wall are aggravated. They start preparing for war. Not only that, but when the wall is completed, we read that the people outside of the wall were filled with great fear and low self-esteem. So there was this peaceful place before. People said we can have more peace if we have a wall. They build a wall and it aggravates the people outside the wall. The wall aggravates Jerusalem's neighbors. Which brings us to the second reaction we have to take notice of. When the wall is half its height, the people who are building the wall look outside the wall and see other people out there with weapons. Why are they holding weapons? Because this nation is building a wall. So the wall is half its height and the workers on the wall are holding a weapon in one hand and a tool in the other. So the wall is halfway done and people feel about half as secure as they did before the wall began. So the second reaction that we have to take note of is that the wall increases the anxiety of the people in Jerusalem. Which brings us to the third reaction, which we have not encountered yet. This reaction takes place in Nehemiah chapter 7, right after the wall is finished. Nehemiah writes in verse 5, Then my God put it into my mind to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. Now, over the next several verses, you read all about the people who were enrolled, and it's rather boring to read. To give you a taste, these are some selections from the next parts of Nehemiah 7. The descendants of Perosh, 2,172. Of Shephthiah, 372. Of Zatu, 845. Of Asgad, 2,322. But then we get all the way down to verse 61, and we're kind of stunned by what happens here. The following were those who came up from Tel Mela, Tel Harsha, Cherub, Adon, and Immer, but they could not prove their ancestral houses or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. The descendants of Deliah, of Tobiah, of Nakoda, 642. 
These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it was not found there, so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean, and the governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until a priest with Urim and Thummim should come. Now what this means is that there were 642 people inside the wall that didn't have the proper paperwork to prove that they had a birthright to live inside the walls. Because they lacked the proper paperwork, these 642 were excluded from all of the religious ceremonies. And back then, that was a really big deal. To give you an idea of how big a deal it was, you could not be forgiven by God unless you participated in the religious ceremonies. And so what happens here is that there's this promise that if we finish the wall, that all of a sudden we'll have peace and harmony and be able to sleep well at night. But the story that unfolds in chapter 7 is the third reaction. The wall makes the people of Jerusalem suspicious of the people of Jerusalem. And this idea right here is what the last seven chapters of Nehemiah are all about. And when you look at these three reactions about how the wall aggravated Jerusalem's neighbors, about how the wall increased the anxiety of the people of Jerusalem, and how the wall made the people of Jerusalem suspicious of the people of Jerusalem, well, then we have to be honest that the wall did the opposite of what the wall promised to do. The wall promised to solve these problems, and instead it exacerbated the problems. And when I read the story of Nehemiah, I have to tell you that there's a thought that creeps into my head. Maybe Jerusalem would have been better off without a wall. Now, it's here that somebody may object and say, you can't have a city without walls. This was a barbaric society. There's no way you could have a city without walls and survive. And while this idea sounds crazy, if you read the whole Bible, you would find that I was not alone in that sentiment. In fact, the prophet Zechariah wrote about Jerusalem and its relationship with a wall in his prophecy. In the Bible, the book of Zechariah tells us that Zechariah received eight visions, the third of which was about whether or not Jerusalem should build a wall after they return from Babylon. The third vision is found in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, and we read these words. Zechariah writes, I looked up and saw a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I asked, where are you going? He answered me to measure Jerusalem to see what is its width and what is its length. Then the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited like villages without walls because of the multitude of people and animals in it. Now, if Zachariah was on this podcast and we asked, can you help us understand your vision? I think he would roll his eyes at us and say, God doesn't want us to build a wall. In fact, in the ninth chapter of his prophecy, Zechariah points at Tyre, a rival nation, and says, those are the guys who build walls, implying that he doesn't think his people are the kind of people who build walls. 
Now, it's here that someone may object to this reading of Zechariah and say, no, Craig, Zechariah is speaking about the new Jerusalem, not the current Jerusalem. You can't exist in a barbaric society without a wall. So he's speaking about the new Jerusalem and how the new Jerusalem shall be inhabited like villages without walls. To which I'd say, all right, let's play it that way then. Because what's the first thing that comes to mind when I say the words pearly gates? Yeah, heaven. And you can't have a pearly gate without having a wall around the entire compound of heaven. Otherwise, that nullifies the whole point of the pearly gate. (laughs) Now, most Christians I know trust and believe that there is a wall around heaven. And when you ask them about this heavenly experience, they will often say things like, oh, this wall is necessary because it will help bring about peace. This peace when we are separated from those evildoers that are dragging us down. Finally, when we get to heaven, we'll be separated and we can live in harmony at long last. So heaven is perceived to be a walled off community. And it's important for us to understand the reactions that this walled off community is causing. Because when we talk about the heavenly gates, I have to tell you, when you go and speak to people outside of our religious tribe, there are some pretty strong reactions. Like imagine going to speak to an atheist or agnostic and saying, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. There's going to be this thing at the end of times where the righteous are brought into heaven and the wicked perish. And guess what, atheist agnostic man, you aren't going to make it. Now, it's here the atheist or agnostic says, really, how do you feel about that? And the Christian will respond by saying, great, and that is a serious disconnect right there. I have found that the heavenly gates, the way the Christians talk about it, often aggravate our spiritual neighbors. Makes them nervous, specifically in how callous we are when we talk about their impending eternal death. But that's not the only reaction I found when I've seen and been a part of Christians who talk about the heavenly gates. Because while Christians will often in front of people talk about how the heavenly gates provide a great source of hope for Christians, I will tell you that's not always the case. If you have ever been to a funeral for a Christian family and they are burying a loved one who has stopped going to church, Well, my brothers and sisters, I have to tell you, heaven isn't a place of hope for them anymore. Instead, they find heaven to be a place of dread because their beliefs are telling them that they are going to spend all eternity separated from a loved one. The second reaction I've seen caused by the heavenly gates is that the heavenly gates cause anxiety for Christians. The third reaction I see when Christians place a wall around heaven is that the heavenly gates cause Christians to be suspicious of other Christians. If you don't believe me, I will tell you that I was raised in a spiritual tradition that taught me that every Christian who went to church on Sunday wasn't going to make it into the heavenly gates. And that our tribe who went to church on Saturday was the only tribe worthy to walk through the gates and meet their Lord and Savior. 
Now, I don't know if you know this, but the majority of Christians in the world go to church on Sunday. So here was my tribe telling the rest of the Christians, ah, yeah, you're not real Christians. And this suspicion was fueled by the fact that there was this understanding that there's a wall around heaven. Now, if you stand up in front of a group of people and say, I don't believe that there is a wall around heaven, then you get accused of being a universalist, which many Christian traditions condemn as heresy. But if you believe that Zechariah is talking about the new Jerusalem when he writes the words that Jerusalem shall be inhabited like villages without walls, then how can it be condemned as heresy if it's in the Bible? And when people ask, is Zechariah talking about the old Jerusalem or the new Jerusalem when he's saying we should be a city without walls, I would respond by saying, yes, he's talking about both. <laughs> because I believe that Zechariah is telling us that the way of God is not the way of a wall. The way of God is not the way of a wall. And people all around us will promise us that a wall will make us safer. It'll make us happier. It'll make it easier for us to sleep at night. But the story that's found in the Bible of a governor who promises all of these things with the construction of a wall is that the wall does the opposite of all of those things. And Zechariah received a vision from God that explicitly states that the way of God is not the way of a wall. My brothers and sisters, may we not be seduced by a wall. And whenever anyone promises us happiness and safety because of the construction of a wall, may we say we have this story in the Bible and we know it well and we will not fall to this again. Now, I'd like to talk about some very personal applications from this story of Nehemiah and the prophecy of Zechariah. When I look at Christianity today, I see a group of entitled people. Because heaven often leads Christians to feel entitled to more love than we have now. When Christians talk about heaven, they often talk about how there is more love over there then there is love here. And so they change their behavior and they do certain things because they believe that they deserve the more love that happens later. And what they are ultimately saying is that there's not as much love now. So because of this entitlement, there is a lack of urgency for us to learn how to love others right now. After all, the predominant Christian view is if I can just hunker down and hang on, then I might be able to survive to the next round of heaven and then I'll learn how to love others. And this entitlement and lack of urgency leads Christians to hate others today because we believe that we can learn to love others later. And so when we encounter those people who are very difficult to love, and those people are out there, what happens is we say, eh, I'll learn to love them later if they make it into heaven. And the primary importance for Christians then is to just survive to heaven. But my brothers and sisters, 
something changes when we view the challenges of today as extraordinary opportunities to grow in love. Whenever you encounter someone who is difficult to love, it is an opportunity for you to grow in love. Not only that, but I'd hate to break this to you, there is probably someone out there who finds you extremely difficult to love. And if you can admit that there are times that you are difficult to love, maybe you can change something about you so that you can become more easy to love. So rather than viewing people as problems who need to be put on the other side of a wall or that need to be excluded or uninvited, we should view these difficult people as human beings created in the image of God, but ultimately are opportunities where we can learn how to grow in love. And I am here to tell you that Christians take these opportunities for granted. We assume that we have eternity to learn how to love, so there's no urgency for us to love today. Now, I want to make a few disclaimers because I know there's lots of complicated situations out there. There are some people that you have to love from a distance. There are times that relationships require you to put boundaries in place. But I have seen boundaries be used as weapons. I have seen people in hostage situations placed at a distance. And so if you are in a very difficult situation where you have to use boundaries or create distance between you and you have to love someone from a distance, I would encourage you to put that distance and boundaries rooted in love. Make sure that the base note of those boundaries are in fact love. And that is your main motivator. So in this lifetime, we are presented with opportunities every day to learn how to grow in love. But we often take those opportunities for granted because we assume we can learn how to love later. There's a song that was recently released by the band named Snow Patrol, and the title of the song is a great prayer for you to say every day to make sure that you avoid falling into the trap of taking these opportunities for granted. The title of the song is, What If This Is All The Love You Ever Get? What if this is it today? How would you change who you are if you knew this was the most love you would ever receive? Our challenge and our charge as Christians is to become people who avoid the temptation of hate and choose to live in remarkable love. May we view today as an overwhelming opportunity to grow in love. And may we see that the way of God is not the way of a wall.